Well, you can turn with in your Bibles to the book of Acts, chapter 2. For our summer series, uh, we're going to look at texts that I think are taken out of context. Now, obviously, that implies I think I'm right, uh, but I am right. And so there are many texts, though, uh, in Christendom or in Christianity that I think people rip out of context. Jeremiah 29.11 is one of them, and we will get to that one. Uh, certainly Philippians chapter four, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. We'll get to that one as well. And if I forgot of any, you guys can uh, give me some more uh, text as well, but I'll find more for sure. But Acts two, Acts two, I think there are many, uh, I think, misunderstanding of what's going on here. So we're actually going to spend three Sundays looking at it. Uh, we're gonna, just going to look at verses one through 21 this morning, uh, but I'm going to read to verse 36 this morning to set the context for us. So Acts chapter two. Uh, verse 1 all the way to verse 36, but we'll look at verses 1 through 21. So Acts chapter 2, verse 1. Now when the day of Pentecost had fully come, they were all with one accord in one place. And suddenly there came a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. Then there appeared to them divided tongues as a fire, and one sat upon each of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. And there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And when this sound occurred, the multitude came together and were confused, because everyone heard them speak in his own language. Then they were all amazed and marveled, saying to one another, Look, are not all these who speak Galileans? And how is it that we hear each in our own language in which we were born? Parthians and Medes and Elamites, those dwelling in Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya adjoining Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabs, and we hear them speaking in our own tongues the wonderful works of God. And so they were all amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, whatever could this mean? Others, mock, others mocking said, they are full of new wine. But Peter, standing up with the eleven, raised his voice and said to them, Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and heed my words. For these are not drunk, as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day. But this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. It shall come to pass in the last days, says God, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your young men shall see visions, your old men shall dream dreams, and on my men servants and on my maidservants, I will pour out my spirit in those days, and they shall prophesy. I will show wonders in heaven above and signs in the earth beneath, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the coming of the great and awesome day of the Lord. And it shall come to pass that whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves also know, him being delivered by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God, you have taken by lawless hands, have crucified and put to death, whom God raised up, having loosed the pains of death, because it was not possible that he should be held by it. For David says concerning him, I foresaw the Lord always before my face. He is at my right hand, that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart rejoiced and my tongue was glad. Moreover, my flesh also will rest in hope. For you will not leave my soul in Hades, nor will you allow your Holy One to see corruption. 
You have made known to me the ways of life. You will make me full of joy in your presence. Men and brethren, let me speak freely to you of the patriarch David, that he is both dead and buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Therefore, being a prophet, knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that of the fruit of his body, according to the flesh, he would raise up the Christ to sit on his throne. He, foreseeing this, spoke concerning the resurrection of the Christ, that his soul has not let, was not left in Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God has raised up, of which we are all witnesses. Therefore, being exalted to the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he poured out this, which you now see and hear. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he says himself, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. Amen. Well, let us pray. Well, Lord, our God, we are thankful for your unfolding plan of redemption. Thank you for the promise of salvation in the seed of the woman. Thank you that that was revealed by farther steps and comes to its fulfillment in the Lord Jesus Christ. And thank you that when these last days began, the spirit was poured out and your gospel has gone to the ends of the earth. And we're thankful that this is uh, founded on that eternal transaction between the father, son and spirit uh, in eternity that the son would come down and take on human flesh and that the son in his human nature would be to obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. And we're thankful that as he has ascended, the spirit has been poured out. Thank you that when there were, uh, once was drips, now there is a roaring river. And we're thankful, oh God, that your spirit still continues to work uh, by the word. Your spirit still continues to work by making dead sinners alive in the Lord Jesus Christ. And for these things, O oh God, we praise you. For these things, we honor you. And we ask, O oh God, that we, your people, would have a better understanding of what is going on here. To see your redemptive history unfolding, even as Christ continues to do and to teach at your right hand and by the power of the Spirit. So thank you for your work. Thank you that you continue to do it even now as your word goes forth. And we pray, O oh God, that your Spirit would continue to work in his mission invisibly as he saves sinners and as he changes hearts and as he sanctifies his saints. And we also pray, O oh God, that you give us illumination from on high. Your scriptures are difficult for us to comprehend. We so often misinterpret and misunderstand what is going on. So often we think what it means for us rather than asking what you intend it to mean. And so we ask, O oh God, you help us to have a proper understanding of your word, but also proper, uh, proper tools to be able to interpret your word. So we ask, oh God, that you be with us now by your spirit, we pray in the name of Christ. Amen. Well, a couple months ago, my dear daughter was playing make-believe with her little lamb, and she had a knife, and she was chopping that little lamb up. And I didn't really know what was going on, but apparently she decided and pretended that it was a loaf of bread. So she was chopping it up, pretending it was a loaf of bread. The problem is I didn't know that. And so for about a minute there, I thought my dear daughter was mutilating this lamb and I was very concerned for her future. You see, it was, I didn't know the context of what was happening. I didn't know what was occurring when she was playing with that lamb. And I think that silly little analogy, the little illustration highlights for us how important context is when we come to God's word. It's very important for us to understand what God is intending in his word as we seek to interpret it. 
So often we neglect it, our right interpretation in our understanding of God's word. So often we think of ourselves, what does it mean for me? What does it mean for me at this time? Rather than asking, what does God intend with the scriptures? So often we don't consider the historical context, what's going on at the time. So often we don't consider what the words mean, the grammatical context. And so often we even neglect the theological or Christological context as well. It is, the, it is God's word, is it not? And if it is God's word, should we not see how the whole scriptures fit together? Should we not see what God intends, not just in Genesis, but also in Revelation, how the parts fit together as a whole? And so in our summer series, we're going to look at texts that are notoriously taken out of context. There's not going to be any order here, but texts that are typically people use for improper uses or improper doctrines. I do it too, you do it too, but they're ones that are very notorious for us. And certainly Acts 2 is one of them. I do think there are many misunderstandings of it that come from many different traditions. Pentecostalism, which is what we'll deal with today. Certainly paedo-baptism, which we'll see in two weeks' time. And also communalism. What does the first century church look like? What does the New Testament church look like? So often people, I think, get this wrong as well, thinking we all need to sing Kumbaya and give everything to everybody. That's not what's going on there in Acts chapter 2. And so Acts 2 is a doozy for many reasons, and we'll look at the outpouring of the Spirit today uh, in verses 1 through 21. And remember, the main programmatic statement of the book of Acts, which is important for Acts 2, is in Acts 1.8. But you shall receive the power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. You shall and you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And even verse five, you have heard from me for John truly baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Not many days from now. So verses one, so verses one through 13 really give us the outpouring. Peter goes on to explain it in verses 14 through 36, and then there's the overarching response in verses 37 through 47. But for our purposes today, we're looking at verses 1 through 21, and here we see the outpouring of the Spirit at Pentecost highlights that the new era, the new creation has dawned, and that the resurrected Christ is advancing his church. The outpouring of the Spirit is all about the risen Lord Jesus Christ and his advancement of the kingdom of heaven, his advancement of the kingdom of God. And the outpouring of the Spirit signifies that very thing, that he is both Lord and God. That's what tongues signify here for us as God continues his redemptive history through the work of the Holy Spirit. So tongues are important, but I do think it has a specific purpose in redemptive history. So we'll look at this outpouring under three headings this morning. First of all, we'll see the outpouring of the Spirit, verses 1 through 4. Secondly, we'll see the response from the crowd in verses 5 through 13. Then lastly, we'll see the explanation from Peter in verses 14 through 21. So the outpouring, verses 1 through 4. The response, verses 5 through 13. And the explanation, verses 14 through 21. So let's first look at the outpouring of the Spirit in verses 1 and 4. And notice the timing of it. It is the day of Pentecost. Verse 1, when the day of Pentecost had fully come, they were all with one accord in one place. All the Jews came together 50 days from after the Sabbath, according to Leviticus 23 and Deuteronomy 16. Remember, I think I said last time or two times ago, 
that Pentecost is an eighth day Sabbath. It's not on Saturday. It's celebrated on Sunday. And typically Jews from the diaspora, those from different parts of the world, would come to Jerusalem on that day and they would celebrate the harvest. They would celebrate the new grain. They would celebrate the first fruits. And as well, they would commemorate the giving of the law at Sinai. And that plays important. Sinai is very important with what we see going on here at Pentecost. So they came to celebrate these things, what God had done for them, and what God would continue to do for them as God provides a harvest for them. The day had fully come. Today is that day. The apostles, disciples are gathered together, I think referring to the 120 from Acts chapter 1, after they had chosen the 12th to replace Judas, they chose Matthias, Matthias, however you want to say his name, they chose him to replace uh, Judas. So the 12 with the others are there together with one accord. They've been praying. They're waiting for the Holy Spirit to be poured out. And suddenly that spirit then is poured out in verse 2. And notice it is sensible. Notice it is visible. And suddenly there came a sound from heaven as of a rushing and mighty wind. And it filled the whole house where they were sitting. Then there appeared to them divided tongues as of fire, and one sat upon each of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. We see the mission of the Spirit being poured out here. And when I refer to the mission of the Spirit, it's just a reflection of the eternal relation of origin. You're like, Mike, please don't talk Trinity this morning, but we're going to do it anyway. You see, when we think of the Trinity, we have one God in Trinity, right? One God in three persons. And as we distinguish between the three persons, there's no distinction of substance. But within the three persons, the Father uh, is not the Son or the Spirit. The Son is not the Father or the Spirit. And the Spirit is not the Father or the Son. Yet it is one God. The Father is God, the Son is God, and the Holy Spirit is God. So how do we distinguish? Well, our confession is very good. Several peculiar relative properties and personal relations. Mike, please stop. The father eternally begets the son, right? That's an eternal relation of origin. Eternally begets the son. That's hard for us to grasp. What does that mean? But he does it from eternity. So eternally begets the son. So the father is God. The son is God. And the father and the son eternally spirate. Or the spirit proceeds from the father and the son. So God is in perfect unity. One God in Trinity. Trinity in unity. It's what we call the processions in God in himself. The missions reflect that. That is, as God works in time and space, the work of the son to come down, be incarnate, take on human flesh, to to die on behalf of his people, to be uh, raised and ascend. His mission continues, certainly, but he is now in heaven, and he continues that mission with the work of the Holy Spirit. We're going to talk about more about this stuff tonight, so you're probably like, ah, maybe I won't come, but you should all still come anyway, because it is the Lord's Supper. But in any case, we see the mission of the Spirit here. It is the undivided act of God to bring about salvation, but we see how each person operates within that salvation, including the outpouring of the Spirit. And so we see the visible mission here. Suddenly there came a sound from heaven as of a rushing and mighty wind, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. It was sensible. It was like a theophany, an appearing of God, but it is more than just an appearing. It is the 
God coming down and dwelling with his people by the Holy Spirit. And even the language of a rushing wind there symbolizes the spirit and presence of God. We see this language in Ezekiel 37 with speaking of the dry bones and how God will pour out his spirit in the latter days. Well, we're seeing that spirit be poured out here. And as a result, the house is filled. And as Christ had promised to them in Acts 1.5, then there appeared to them divided tongues as of fire. And one sat upon each of them. There's this sensible thing that is going on here. Divided tongues, different languages. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. And began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. So certainly there is this Lucan connection with that fire. For John the Baptist says that one who is coming, who is mightier than I... He will baptize you with Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit and with fire. And here we see that fulfillment. Jesus Christ is baptizing his church with the Holy Spirit and with fire. And what's interesting is the language of fire there has allusions back to Sinai. God appearing to the Old Testament people, God appearing to the Old Covenant people in a sensible way. Acts chapter nine, or sorry, Exodus 19 with the thundering and lightning and the people being freaking out about that very thing. Well, the language in uh, Exodus 24, 17, speaking about that very uh, theophany of God, the appearing of him, he says, the sight of the glory of the Lord was like a consuming fire. Very similar echoing here. It's a clear echo, I think, from Acts 2 all the way back to uh, Exodus 24. There are many things we look for. There's clear quotes, like we'll see with Joel 2, but sometimes even just two or three words line up. And there are three words that line up here uh, from the Acts 2 that is alluding back to Exodus 24, 17. The sight of the glory of the Lord was like a consuming fire on the top of the mountain in the eyes of the children of Israel. So that's when Moses goes up in the midst and was on the mountain 40 days and 40 nights. So it symbolizes God's presence. It symbolizes the fact, especially in this new covenant way, that God is outpouring his spirit, not just for Israel, but for the ends of the earth, which we will see. Certainly the rest of the book unfolds that, but certainly we'll even see implication of that in verses 5 through 13. But in any case, Divided tongues, we'll talk about tongues more as we go through, but the outward manifestation of the Holy Spirit being there are these differing tongues, differing languages. And what's interesting is Pentecostalism likes to say you're not really blessed until you speak in tongues, right? Listen to one writer. Paul nowhere intimates that glossolalia is an indispensable, that's the word, indispensable proof of the reception of the Spirit. Whether the gift of tongues raises those members who have received it to a higher level of Christian living. The church in Corinth took tongues and made it a higher standard of Christian living. Did they not do such a thing? So is it any surprise that it happens in our modern context as well? I understand there are some conservative Calvinistic people who still believe in the continuation of tongues. I understand that. I do not. I'm a cessationist. That's very clear. Hopefully that's very, uh, very clear to me anyway, but I still believe there is a place for tongues. Johnson says, and it's not in and of themselves. 
It's not for my own personal benefit. It's not for my own personal individual time. But it is a sign, as Johnson says, that echoes the new beginnings in the Old Testament, displaying the new creation, the new exodus, new revelation, and the new resurrection that the Spirit initiates at his coming. That is, tongues are not about you. They're about the outpouring of the Holy Spirit as a sign that God is continuing his redemptive work is an event in redemptive history. And what's interesting is tongues are very rare in the entire Bible. And we'll see that as we go through. But even to notice, as the Spirit gave them utterance, they just do it all the time when it was being used. As the Spirit gave them utterance, and that word is going to be used for Peter in uh, verse 14 when he stands up and raises his voice like a prophet. It's typically tied to someone who has inspiration, typically tied to someone who is uh, a prophet, typically tied to someone who speaks on behalf of God. So it wasn't just people spelt not gibberish off that they didn't understand, but they were speaking and God was then intelligibly and God was then using that uh, with respect to other people that they might hear in their own language. But in any case, the key thing is it's Christ has outpoured the spirit. That's the emphasis of what tongues is. And it signifies in the absence of Christ in his body, he has sent forth the spirit and that presence of God is with his people. Christ is with his people, even though he's at the right hand of God, the father. So it is a great blessing to have the spirit poured out. It is a blessing for the church, that God has his presence amongst his people. Revelation 1, how is it that Christ dwells amongst the lampstands? How is it that Christ dwells amongst his people? It is, by the, it is by the work of the Spirit. He is that agent of new creation who has been poured out on the church and continues to work in his church to strengthen his church, but also to strengthen his people. There is an individual application here. And Paul Peter drives that home and we'll get to the response in verse 37 and 38. He says, when the men of Israel are cut to the heart, what shall we do? Repent and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins. And you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. It's not just that the Spirit has been poured out in a cosmic, redemptive, historical way that has individual significance for the people of God. The spirit regenerates, but also through faith, you receive the Holy Spirit as a gift, as a first fruits, as a guarantee, as a pledge for the new heavens and new earth. This is what Paul says in Ephesians 1. We will see that uh, two Lord's suppers from now in Ephesians 3, uh, 1 verses 13 and 14 that we have that agent of new creation who dwells each and every one of us, dear brethren. We have to remember that. We have to remember that in our Christian walk. We have to not forget that, especially when we have battles and struggles against various sins. We have the Holy Spirit who strengthens us with might, according to Ephesians chapter 3, and we ought to pray that very thing. So the blessing of the Spirit is really not about the tongues. When we make it about the tongues as a sign in and of itself, we miss the significance of what is going on 
in the book of Acts. And the most significant thing, significant thing is God is presence, present with his people in a fuller way than the old covenant. So that's the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. Let's then look secondly at the response from the crowd, verses 5 to 13. So notice, location, 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 important for the book. And they were dwelling in Jerusalem. You'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem. So we see this first outpouring here. And what's interesting, too, is when we consider the relationship between the old and the new, John the Baptist is the last Old Testament prophet. And the people in the Old Testament, or perhaps we've used this image of a clock before. I've heard that image. and I think it's very good. That is, people are, I'll just use the, I guess, the phenomena that's happening during various times. But the old, in the Old Testament, people are in darkness. It's very, very, it's still the middle of the night. You cannot see. And then John the Baptist comes on the scene, and soon the day begins to dawn. Things are starting to become a little bit more clear. He comes and he says, one, he's, he's the, the prophet Elijah, the one crying in the wilderness. And then when Jesus comes, it's shining day. It's noonday. Is it 9 to 12? I've uh, seen that reference to Christ. And the apostles are explaining it. It's 3 p.m. They're explaining what Christ has done. They're explaining all those things. We have more clarity. We can see better because the spirit has now been poured out in these last days. So redemptive history, again, unfolding plan, salvation, very much in view here. And notice the audience. It's people from every nation under heaven. They're Jews, but they're from every nation under heaven. And perhaps there is a connection with the Tower of Babel here. Some differ on this. But in the ancient Near Eastern world, people viewed Babel as a sort of temple to try and gain some sort of access and presence with God. Well, what's happening here? And at Babel, first of all, God scattered them. He spread them out through the ends of the earth. And then God, thankfully, in Genesis 11, right after Babel, he says, in Abraham, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. We're starting to see that here, aren't we? In Abraham, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. And there are many different Jews from many different nations. And when this sound occurred, the multitude did not know what it was. They came together and were confused because everyone heard them speak in his own language. Notice, speaking in his own language. Not some heavenly language, but in their own language. Tongues is about existing languages and people hearing it in their own language. It's not meant to be some heavenly type language. It's not meant to be something that I do privately, speaking to my God in a way that I don't understand. It is meant to be a language that was used for a specific time as the gospel advanced. And what's interesting is when Pentecostalism emerged at the beginning of the 1900s, the initial Pentecostals believed that very thing. They believed it was just languages. They didn't believe in some sort of heavenly, heavenly sort of idea that way or a heavenly language. That emerged later on. And the, uh, but it really is languages. And the reason is, we'll talk about this in just a moment, is that tongues either signifies blessing or judgment. But these men were confused, but they're hearing it. Then they were all amazed uh, uh, and marveled, saying to one another, Look, are not all these who speak Galileans? And how is it that we hear each in our own language in which we were born? Parthian and Medes and Elamites, all sorts, dwelling in Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, 
Pontus in Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya adjoining Cyrene, visitors uh, from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabs. We hear them speaking in our own tongues, the wonderful works of God. How is it? And notice too, again, to further defend the point that it was one's own language. It wasn't some sort of heavenly language. Notice what they're hearing, the content of the tongue, the wonderful works of God. The content is more important than the gift, isn't it? What is said is more important than someone just shutting off in gibberish because we must understand what is being said. And this is where Peter helps us. When Peter, Peter stands up and gives his sermon, his three-point sermon, we're going to look at the first point of his sermon, but as he gives his three-point sermon, he explains what's going on. He explains what's happening. He's not just blacked out going into speaking randomly. He is speaking something that he knows, and they are hearing it in their own tongue. They hear the wonderful works of God. Bruce says, we should do well to pay heed to these apostolic injunctions today in relation not only to ecstatic utterances, but to other utterances, whether one prophesies or speaks in tongues or not. The content is more important than the manner. What is said is most important. I don't care if someone can make things levitate. I don't care if someone gets 500 prophecies right. I don't care if someone speaks in tongues. If they do not speak the truth of the gospel, it is null and void and a major problem. So it uh, ought to be the main focus is what is said, the wonderful works of God. So that they were all amazed and perplexed. What, what could this mean? We, we need to understand this. Some were, were curious. Others, well, they thought, ah, they're just full of wine. Others, mocking, said they are full of new wine. They looked like they were had a little bit too much to drink, or at least that's what it seemed to them. And Peter is going to get up and explain what is going on. Brethren, here, I just want to touch on the significance of tongues. Again, it is about redemptive historical use. It signifies the advance to the ends of the earth because they are very rare in Acts, aren't they? And they signify and follow along what Paul, uh, Jesus says in Acts 1.8, Jerusalem, Acts 2, redemptive history. I think it's implied in Acts 8, Samaria, and then I think 10, we see Gentiles with Cornelius, the spirit falling that way. And then lastly, in Ephesus in Acts 19, which signifies the ends of the earth, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth, a reuniting in the Lord Jesus Christ, the outpouring of the spirit to the ends of the earth. It was all about corporate significance, theological significance, never personal. And even in Corinth, what is Paul addressing there? He's addressing problems they had in their corporate gatherings and he's correcting what they're saying there i think there is a misuse of it even in corinth and that's why paul is writing but what's so very interesting is in first corinthians 14 again i do believe there was a time and place for them for redemptive significance for redemptive focus however i do believe that they have faded away and are no more because we have the fullness of God's word for us. And even Acts, it fades to the end. The emphasis is preaching. But in 14, 
he says they must be interpreted. Verse 6. But now, brethren, if I come to you speaking with tongues, what shall I profit you? Unless I speak to you either by revelation, by knowledge, by prophesying, or by teaching. That is, they must understand what is being said. Even things without life, whether flute or harp, when they make a sound, unless they make a distinction in the sounds, how will it be known what is piped or played? Do you see what he's saying there? If you speak in tongues and nobody understands, it's like someone playing a flute out of tune because you can't understand what's being done. For if the tr uh, trumpet makes a certain, an uncertain sound, who will prepare for battle? So likewise, unless you utter by the tongues words easy to understand, how will it be known what is spoken? For you will be speaking into the air. There are and may be so many kinds of languages in the world, and none of them is without significance. Therefore, I do not know the meaning of, if I do not know the meaning of the language, I shall be a foreigner to him who speaks, and he who speaks will be a foreigner to me. Even so, you, since you are zealous for spiritual gifts, let it be for the edification of the church that you seek to excel. And if you can't understand what is being said, how does that edify the church of the Lord Jesus Christ? He goes on to say, therefore, let him who speaks in a tongue pray that he may interpret it. You want to know why? I'm going to skip ahead to verse 20. Because tongues are a sign of judgment. Brethren, do not be children in understanding. However, in malice, be babes, but in understanding, be mature. And the law it is written, with men of other tongues and other lips, I will speak to this people. And yet for all that, they will not hear me. This is from Isaiah 28. And certainly the curse of going to a place where you do not know the language is a curse in Deuteronomy 28. But in Isaiah 28, we see the prophet there speaking woes upon Ephraim and Judea. Speaking of the coming judgment that shall happen to them. For they did not heed the word or hear the word or listen to the intelligible word of God. Verse 11. For with stammering lips and another tongue, who will speak to this people? To whom he said, this is the rest with which you may cause the weary to rest. And this, and, and this is the refreshing, yet they would not hear. But the word of the Lord was to them, precept upon precept, precept upon precept, line by line, line upon line, here a little, there a little, that they might go and fall backward and be broken and snared and caught. Therefore, hear the word of the Lord. Listen to what God has said. It's very clear. It's there. Otherwise, you will be taken and kicked out to a place in which you do not understand. Tongues is a sign of judgment. And some people argue as well that in Acts 2, there is this judgment upon Israel. They have been rejected. And now the gospel is going out to the ends of the earth. So tongues has a place. We must put it in its proper place in redemptive history. So that's the response from the crowd. Let's then look thirdly and finally the explanation from Peter in verses 14 through 21. Supported by the 11, he stands up, raises his voice, that word for divine utterance. He says, men of Judea, which is how he signifies his three points, men of Judea, men of Israel, men and brethren. Let this be known to you and heed my words. He's making it known to them what it means. 
intelligibly. For these are not drunk, as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day. He makes a joke, so I think it's sometimes okay for pastors to make jokes. Third hour of the day, it's 9 a.m. Yeah, hey, how can they be drunk? But this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. So he's taking and interpreting what's happening in that framework. Joel 2, 28 to 32. And notice verse 17. It shall come to pass in the last days, says God. When are the last days, dear brethren? The last days are what we are in. The last days are what were what the apostles were in at that time. The last days will, what, will be what are hopefully my grandchildren and great-grandchildren are in as well. Bruce says the last days begin with the first advent. The Old Testament people were looking towards the last days and will end with his second advent. They are the days which the age to come overlaps the present age. Jesus will be given power both in this age and the age to come. Ephesians chapter 1. That's why I believe the last days just simply refer to the time between Christ's first and second coming. And it dawns after his accomplishment and outpouring of the Holy Spirit. So the, it shall come to pass in these last days, says God. It's about what he does, his work. Then I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. The images of a water, a watery, a water in a dry land. And again, the Old Testament were drips and drops or sparks. And now it's a you know, roaring river and a raging fire. In that clock analogy, 6 a.m., now we're at 3 p.m. They're explaining what's happening. And notice the image he uses. They shall have communion with God. Not that everyone is going to prophesy and dream dreams. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. And your young men shall see visions. Your old men shall dream dreams. And on my men servants and on my maid servants, I will pour out my spirit and they shall prophesy. That is, they shall know me. They shall know God. It's akin to what is said in Jeremiah 31, when he says, they shall no more shall every man teach his neighbor and every man his brother saying, no God, they shall know to me, know me the least of them to the greatest of them. And remember, in Numbers chapter 11, Moses says, I wish that all men would prophesy. Prophecy was only something that was given to a select few, and now it is being poured out in full. And he says in verse 29 of Numbers 11, Are you zealous for my sake? Oh, that all the Lord's people were prophets and that the Lord would put his spirit upon them. See, brethren, we truly are a priesthood of believers, not saying we don't have pastors, but we really truly do have access to God. We truly do know him. We actually, especially in modern times, we have the words of God before our very hearts and very lives, probably multiple Bibles on the shelf. We don't read it as much as we should, but we still do. We can approach God boldly through the Lord Jesus Christ by the Spirit. We can boldly approach the Father through the Lord Jesus Christ and by the power of the Spirit. We know God. We have access to him. In uh, Numbers 12, verse 6, speaking about the prophet Moses, he says, Hear my, now my words. There is a prophet among you. I, the Lord, make myself known to him in a vision. I speak to him in a dream. Not so with my servant Moses. He is faithful in all my house. I speak with him face to face, even plainly and not in dark sayings. And he sees the form of the Lord. And when you were not afraid to speak, when and why then were you not afraid to speak against my servant 
Moses. And that's when Miriam and Aaron tried to go against Moses there. And God highlights that I speak with him. Brethren, that blessing and promise that was given to the prophets and given to Moses is now for you and I. The spirit has been poured out in full and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Young men shall see visions, your old men dream dreams, and on my men servants and on my maid servants, I will pour out my spirit in those days. Figurative language, speaking about, certainly there are men who certainly prophesy in Acts chapter 2, but it also highlights and signifies that we have access to God. I will pour out my spirit in those days, and they shall prophesy. And then notice, uh, and what that highlights for us with tongues even is tongues is a subset of prophecy, right? It's a subset of speaking on behalf of God, speaking to people who might know, not know that very language. So it is a sign of God's promise, a sign from Joel, a sign for the people that Peter has to explain to them. And then in verses 19 to 21, he talks about signs and wonders. I will show wonders in heaven above and signs in the earth beneath, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. Could probably referring to the events at Pentecost, also referring to the the work of the Lord Jesus Christ, which he'll unpack in verse 22 and following. And even the sun shall be turned into darkness. This is judgment language, which we saw in Mark 13 and is in Isaiah 13. And the moon into blood. Notice before the great and awesome day of the Lord. That is, there's going to be a day of judgment. Now, certainly there is a symbol of that with the destruction of the temple. And certainly Israel is being judged in many ways. Eventually in Acts 7, uh, uh, Stephen doesn't even hold out salvation. He just says, you're a stiff-necked people. You've always rejected the Lord God. He calls them out very much uh, in that passage. But here, notice Whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. That is, the eschatological clock is ticking. There is a great and terrifying day of the Lord that is coming. Repent and believe now. That is, there is a great, certainly 8070 does come after this, but certainly there shall be another day that comes when God comes again to judge the living and the dead. And it'll either happen before you die or will certainly happen after you die. And if it happens after you die, then there is no more hope. You must believe now. The clock is ticking. Why wait? Don't tarry if you're an unbeliever. Look to Christ. Whoever calls upon him shall be saved. And you see this language in Romans chapter 10. In that context, speaking about Israel, what of Israel? Not a millennial kingdom for Israel, but that Israel might come and be saved and engrafted in through faith. For in Christ, there's neither Jew nor Greek. And in the advancement of the gospel, it is the Jew first, then the Greek, which is what we see in the book of Acts. So it's not as though we're, even though I'm not dispensational, it's not as though I'm anti-Israel or anti-Jew, but it's not as though they're going to have a millennial kingdom, but they can come in by faith and believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ. Anyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved and thankfully god does save some of these men in verse 37 and following which we'll look at at another time but box says the need for salvation surfaces because of the reality of coming judgment and the accountability that judgment requires notice how peter takes the outpouring of the spirit 
and he's connecting it to Christ. And he will connect it to Christ to signify what he has done. And he uses this to call men and to repent and believe upon the Lord. Because the central place of salvation is in Christ. That's what the outpouring of the Spirit signifies. That's what tongues signifies. That Christ has been raised to the right hand and he is both Lord and God. And thankfully, that one who is Lord and God continues to work, continues to operate through his church for the salvation of souls. Whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. And this is what the outpouring of the Spirit at Pentecost signifies. Christ has been raised. Christ is working. Christ continues to work now. Christ continues to advance his church now. And whoever calls upon his name shall be saved by the power and work of the Spirit. Let us pray. Our gracious God, we are thankful again for your unfolding plan of redemption. And thank you that the outpouring of the Spirit is upon all. And it signifies Christ's completed and finished work, declared to be the Son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead. And we're thankful that he baptizes his people, his church, with the Holy Spirit and with fire, with the presence of the Spirit. And, oh God, so often we don't always feel that you are near. But we're thankful for the promise in your word that you invisibly work and you invisibly work even now. And so we ask, oh God, for your people that we would appreciate the proper place of signs and wonders. Appreciate the proper place of extraordinary works that are done. But, oh God, help us to be a people that appreciates your ordinary means of salvation. As we see the miracles of sinners being raised and being saved. We know that this is a gift. We know that this is a mighty work, oh God. We know that this is a miracle. And we pray, oh God, as we live in this time where we have your word and have it um, multiple words that we can read. We pray, oh God, that we individually would appreciate it, but even more so that we would appreciate the means of grace and the gathering of your people as the gospel advances to the ends of the earth. And thank you that you are pleased to bless us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places even as we have the Holy Spirit who has that agent of new creation who indwells each and every one of us. So we pray, oh God, in our Christian walk, we pray that we have a right understanding of your word and what it says, that we would appreciate things that are intelligible. And we're thankful, oh God, that you help us to better understand those things because so often it takes us time to understand what your word says. So we ask God, you help us all in our Christian walk Be pleased to save sinners. Be pleased to strengthen your saints in all things. We pray that you be glorified. And may you do so by the power of your spirit. And we pray these things in the name of Christ. Amen.